Thank you very much for reading for us. Let's keep our Bibles open there and pray that God will help us to understand. Heavenly Father, as we take your word into our hands and open it, we pray that you will take our lives into your hands and open them. And we ask that there may be a meeting between us, your people, and you, the living God, in the pages of the scriptures, through the work of your spirit, as we seek to understand your word together. Please give us illumination, we pray, that our lives may show forth your praises, you who are the light of the world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to uh, pick up the last uh, verse of the reading, verse 13, as our title for this morning. You'll find there's an outline on the back of the notice sheet, which uh, shows where we'll be going in the next few minutes. And I've called this comfort and compassion. The Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. We have several uh, vivid expressions in our language for the experience of being excluded. Uh, We talk about being left out in the cold um, or being out of the loop or being kept in the dark. And uh, none of those experiences is a pleasant experience, and the way in which we refer to it means that we don't really want it to continue. We want to be brought into the inner circle. We want the light to be turned on. And at this stage in Isaiah's book, as we're studying through these chapters in the 40s and into the 50s, that is exactly what is now beginning to happen. The prophet starts a new section in verse uh, 1 of chapter 49, which will run through to the end of chapter 55, a section in which God's light shines more brightly than it has done ever before in the whole of this book. Now, last week we ended with that verse uh, in chapter 48, verse 22, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. And that verse recurs later on in chapter 57, right at the end of the chapter, A direct repeat, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. In between those two uses of the verse, it is as though God is saying, so what is going to happen to this world that is sunk in wickedness and darkness? How is this world going to be redeemed? Where will the light shine from? How is the sin of the human race to be dealt with? And in between, this light is turned on and turned up to the maximum Old Testament brightness. After all the clouds of idolatry and hypocrisy and compromise that we've seen in these chapters in the 40s, after all the suffering of the warfare and the political upheaval of the exile to Babylon, like the sun finally bursting through the clouds on a gloomy, depressing day, God's light now starts to shine clearly and steadily as Isaiah is shown how God will change the situation in his world, how he's going to change the faithless Jerusalem that we met right back in chapter 1 at the beginning of last year, that faithless Jerusalem into a faithful city, a new Jerusalem, a community of people who love and serve the Lord, how the nations who are sunk in their hopeless wickedness and idolatry will be rescued by a figure whose identity still remains largely hidden, but whose work when he comes into the world 
will transform the entire world order. Isaiah's already given us little cameos of him. He's the branch that will come out of Jesse's root. That is, he'll be a descendant of David, the son of Jesse, an inheritor of the great kingdom that David was given by God. He's the one whose name is Emmanuel, God with us. He's the one on whose shoulders world government will rest, not just for a period of elected office, but forever and ever. He is the one who is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. The one whom the Lord refers to in these chapters, 49 to 55, as my servant. Now we saw earlier in this series in February that um, the servant is firstly Cyrus, the Medo-Persian emperor who conquered the Babylonians and allowed the Jews to return to their land after the exile. But he is just a pale foreshadowing of the victory and the freedom that will come through God's supreme servant. And the light shines so brightly in these chapters because they are devoted to expounding to us the person of the servant and the work that he's going to do. He will make the connections. He will turn the light on. There are four servant poems or songs in this second half of Isaiah. We've already looked at one in chapter 42, verses 1 to 4, where the servant is introduced somewhat mysteriously, but with clear understanding that he's going to have a profound impact on the whole world. Today we have the second servant song, chapter 49, 1 to 6. The third is in chapter 50, and the great 53rd chapter of Isaiah is the fourth song. Each one shines the light with increasing focus and clarity. Each one shows us more and more about the servant's identity, about his character, about his activity. And each one is followed by a commentary from God himself, the authorization of everything that is promised, the authentication of it, that God will do what he has said he will do. And so what we have here are four amazing portraits of the one who comes as the servant of the Lord and whom the New Testament identifies beyond any doubt at all as being the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the light of the world. So we're going to look at this morning's passage under two headings, the servant reveals his program and the Lord confirms his purposes. Chapter 49 verse 1 begins by summoning the widest possible audience to listen. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. Even the remotest parts of the earth have an interest in what is about to be said concerning this servant. Even these remote British islands, so many centuries later, are caught up in this great work of God, which he began in the person of his son. And long before God had promised... Uh, uh, long before he came, that is, God had promised that all the nations of the world would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. His program was never confined to a narrow nationalistic purpose. Uh, The Old Testament, of course, concerns the history of the children of Abraham, the nation of Israel, and God's dealings with them in his covenant mercy. 
But from the very beginning, God called them to be his people, not so that they would simply have exclusive privileges, but that they might bear his light to the nations. So his promise was never narrow or confined. His program always had the whole world in view. And the servant's work will be for the whole human race. He will be, as um, uh, the New Testament says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Now, in the song, there are a number of points, which you'll see down there on the outline, that uh, expound for us the servant and his work. First of all, his commission. Second part of verse 1. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. What he's saying is this role which he is to fulfill is not something that he has chosen for himself. Clearly he is an individual born in the normal human way and his very existence is determined by God from the earliest moment of conception in his mother's womb. Now the name which is as yet unrevealed, he named my name, will be the description of his nature or of his occupation we would say, his ministry. And we still have many British surnames that reflect that. Cooper, Wainwright, Shepherd, Smith, all sorts of surnames that originate from an occupation. And in Hebrew thinking, uh, the name reveals the nature of the person. Uh, it's not usual for us to do that when we name our children in terms of their Christian names, as we call them, but our surnames inherit many of our surnames anyway, that sort of uh, geographical or um, occupational background. Um, I remember meeting someone who was a student a few years ago who uh, lived in a place uh, in a street called Paradise Square. Um, he was uh, soon after that evicted from it because it was regarded as being unfit for human habitation, even student habitation, so that the name of the square really bore no relationship to the nature at all. It certainly wasn't paradise. We tend to use names like that as labels that we stick on things. But we know from chapter 7 of Isaiah that the promised virgin son will be Immanuel, God with us. And uh, it will be centuries later, seven centuries later, that an angel comes to a man called Joseph in the town of Nazareth and says, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So this is literally fulfilled in Christ, miraculously conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, named as God's rescuer before his birth, coming into this world at the express will of God to bring salvation, peace for the wicked. This is his commission. Now look at his activity in verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. See, the servant's work will center on his speech. He will be a spokesman for God, what the Old Testament would call a prophet. And Jesus is, of course, the great prophet, the greatest of all the prophets, the climax of the prophetic movement. His words will be like the sharp edge of a sword's blade 
or like a streamlined arrow traveling at speed to penetrate the defenses of his opponents with deadly accuracy. That's the imagery here. In modern terms, it's like um, an incoming missile getting under the radar screen in order to wreak havoc in the object of its attack. In other words, then, this servant is going to be a powerful speaker, preacher, prophet. He's going to have a ministry of his mouth which will have profound effects. And that ability is God-given. Look at verse 2. He made my mouth. He made me a polished arrow. He's going to carry out purposes then that God himself has built into his uh, very birth and creation. And of course, when we open our New Testaments, we're not surprised to find that the rescuer who claims to be God's son, Jesus of Nazareth, deliberately chooses to focus his activity on his teaching and preaching role, not on his healing ministry, wonderful though that is. You remember how Mark, at the start of his gospel, describes Jesus with all the crowds around him, pressing in on him, wanting healing, day after day after day. And in Mark 1.38, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, let's go to another village. Uh, why? Because he doesn't care for the people? No. But he says, let's go to another village in order that I may teach and preach there, because that is why I've come. His preaching, teaching ministry is at the very heart of his identity. And when we read his words in the gospel, of course they are full of grace, but they are sharp as truth, penetrating human defenses, exposing hypocrisy, uh, double standards, revealing the thoughts and intentions of the human heart. No man spoke like this man, they said. And yet, when Christ came, he was hidden, wasn't he, as verse 2 says. They didn't immediately recognize him. There was a great debate about who he might be. There was a, a hiddenness about his personality. His teaching was often resisted and in the end rejected by many. And all sorts of attempts were made to stop him, which culminated eventually in his betrayal and his death on the cross. And the same thing is still happening 20 centuries later. Wherever people really understand the teaching of Jesus, there is a great division. It is like an arrow. It's like a sword that opens up the hidden depths of our heart. So this is his commission and this is his activity. It's not, of course, the whole story about his activity. That's going to be made really clear in the 53rd chapter. But here we have the beginning of it, the teaching, penetrating, revealing ministry of Jesus Christ. So what is his identity? Verse 3. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel in whom I will be glorified. And when you read that verse, you might rightly be saying, well, there you are in the pulpit saying this is all about Jesus. How you, can you be so sure of that, that it's prophesying about Jesus, the Christ? Well, the issue is brought to a head by the naming of the servant in verse 3. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel. Now, Israel surely is the nation, isn't it? Well, it's not quite that simple. Look down at verse 5. Now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. Now, if you think about it, 
what that is saying is that Israel is going to gather Israel. If the servant is Israel, and if the servant is the means by which Israel is gathered back to God, how can Israel gather Israel? It's impossible, isn't it? So what is meant here? Well, this is where we have to track back a little bit in our understanding in the Old Testament. Do you remember when the nation of Israel was first formed, way back in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible? In chapter 4 and verse 22, God says about this nation that he's going to shape, the sons of Abraham who will inherit his covenant promises. Israel, the name he gives them, is my son, my firstborn. And the mark of sonship is that the father gives his life to the son. God, therefore, chooses to give life to his people so that he might live in a deep personal relationship with them. And the whole covenant set up with its sacrificial system and its laws and uh, its provisions of God's grace is in order to, to uh, produce a divinely created community, a nation that are in unique relationship with God. Now, he takes the name for the nation from Jacob, the third of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, whose name is changed by God to Israel. And Israel means literally God strives. And the history of Israel is God striving with his people to make them more like himself. And sometimes Israel striving against God's activity. They are the inheritors of the promises to Abraham. They are bound to God by covenant oath and promises which must not be broken. But of course, Israel never could fulfill that because they, like us, are sinful human beings. So what is going to happen to Israel in her rebellion and failure? Well, turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 5 because this will help us to understand why the coming of Jesus is so glorious. Chapter 5, which you'll find on page 687. It, you may remember this from when we were last in Isaiah. It's a, a lament about a vineyard that was privileged to receive all the investment and care its owner could lavish upon it. You see that in verse 1? My beloved had a vineyard and a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower. He looked for it to yield grapes, end of verse 2, but it yielded wild grapes. So what's he going to do when it uh, doesn't produce? Well, he tells us in verse 5, I'll remove the hedge, I'll break down the wall, verse 6, I'll make it a waste. I will command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. It's a very sad picture, isn't it, of so much potential. Everything there to produce a fine crop of grapes. But when he looked for it to yield grapes, it yielded only inedible, wild grapes. The nation consistently failed to produce the fruit. How do we know it's the nation? Look at verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, the southern kingdom, are his pleasant planting. So you see, Old Testament Israel failed to be what God had called her to be. The faithless city of Isaiah 1, the faithless people, are under the threatening cloud of God's judgment which we see in the exile to Babylon. There is no peace for the wicked, says my God. 
So what hope is there for Israel? Israel has to be gathered back, but she cannot do it herself because she's already drifted so far from God. Now come to the New Testament, because the biblical principle is that the New Testament always shines light on the old. We understand the New Testament through the lens of Christ. Through the new, uh, we understand the old through the lens of Christ. It's only as we see the Old Testament in the perspective of the new that we begin to understand. And we're going to John chapter 15 and the first verse, page 1087. 1087. Here is Jesus, the light of the world, in another great I am saying from John's gospel. John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Literally, I am the vine, the real one. And my father is the vine dresser. He's the one who planted the vineyard. He's the one who looked for the good group fruit. And he's the one who, having judged his people for their sinful rebellion against him, now sends his son to be a new son, a new Israel, a new vine, the real vine. And this vine is going to be fruitful. John 15, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. All that Israel therefore failed to be as the Lord's servant, Jesus was and is. Where they sinned, he perfectly obeyed. Where they wanted to keep God's covenant blessings as their exclusive privilege, he came to deal with the sins of the whole world and to bring about a universal salvation, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And it is only this son who can glorify God by a life of perfect obedience. So as we come back to Isaiah and uh, to chapter 49 and verse 3, which uh, if you've lost the place is on page uh, 737, chapter 49, verse 3. He said to me, that is to Jesus, you are my real servant, the true Israel. And you are the one in whom I will be glorified. That is to say, in Christ alone, all the splendor of God is revealed, full of grace and truth. No prophet, no king, no national movement could do this. As the New Testament says, we have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. For the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus. Well now back in Isaiah then as we see his identity there is a sudden and very unexpected shift in verse 4 to what I called his disappointment. Do read verse 4 with me. But I said, I have labored in vain. This is the servant speaking. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Note the context. God said, verse 3, you are my servant. I will be glorified. But I said, says the servant, in a direct reply to God's commission and God's confidence in him, it's all been in vain. It's been for nothing. 
He looks around at the way in which he has fulfilled this role and there is disappointment and even frustration. In fact, in the original, the emphatic position is in those phrases, to no purpose, in vain, vanity. All this hard work and activity, what is there to show for it? Now, when you come to the New Testament Gospels, you can see that that is exactly what happens. As Jesus taught, the response was often critical, hostile, hardening. Matthew gives us uh, a flavor. Today we're doing, our fingers are doing the walking. It's like the yellow pages. So we're going to walk through um, one other passage here in the New Testament. Have a look at Matthew chapter 11 and verse 16 on page 984. Page 984. It's wonderful how the New and the Old Testament link up together and the New shines light on the Old. Here is why the servant is expressing this disappointment in verse 4. Matthew 11 and verse 16. Jesus speaking. To what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces, calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And the Son of Man comes, eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Never satisfied, you see. Whatever Jesus did, always critical, always opposed to him. But wisdom is justified by her deeds. You see in action the reality. And then he began, verse 20, to denounce the cities where most of his mighty deeds had been done. Because they didn't repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the mighty works done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon, Gentile cities... They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Sodom, it would have repented. Sorry, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. See, these hardening hearts, this refusal to repent, the word of God set loose in their community. But wherever the word of God is heard, the hearts of the heroes will either harden or soften. That's what's happening in your heart this morning. As we look at the word of God together, we don't emerge from church exactly the same people as when we came in. Our hearts are either softened by God's word so that we turn to him in renewed repentance and faith, or we harden ourselves. We say, I don't like that. I don't want that. You can never actually turn away from the Bible unchanged. But then look at what Jesus says in verse 25 here in Matthew 11. At that time... When he is uh, rebuking the cities for their unbelief, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. See how Jesus was prepared to submit to the Father's will in it all and recognize the Father's supreme wisdom. Now, Back in Isaiah chapter 49, back on page 737 and verse 4, and the second part of the verse, after the disappointment and the frustration, look at the resolution. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, 
and my recompense is with my God. He's content to leave the outcome with God. He humbled himself. He endured such contradiction of sinners against him. He sweat great drops of blood in Gethsemane. But through it all, the confidence of verse 4, my right is with the Lord, my recompense is with my God. His judgment's right, his rewards are fair, I can trust in him. And every follower of the servant, incidentally, can say the same thing. God will sort it out. He's in control. Your recompense is with your God. And then lastly, verses 5 and 6, which are great verses and which turn the tide for us. For now the Lord says, verse 5, He who formed me from the womb to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. That's the first task of Jesus, to be the revelation of God as the Messiah to the Jews. But look, it's more than that. Verse 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. They were the first to be reached. Theirs was the first opportunity. But look, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That outcome is far greater than has previously been imagined. The pagan nations need God's light. The ends of the earth, the whole world needs God's salvation. And so when he comes, he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He chooses to reveal this character of God, to shine out the light of God, to illuminate the pathway into God's presence and to make it possible for men and women like us from all nations to live in relationship with the God who made us for himself. But let's remember too that Christ who is the light also said to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hid. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now lastly and very briefly, I wanted to spend most time on the person of the servant because the Lord Jesus is the center of everything in our worship and our lives. And I wanted us to see just how wonderfully this is fulfilled in him. But then in the second part of the passage, the Lord confirms his purposes. Firstly, he confirms them to his servant, thus says the Lord, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. So there's no doubt about it. He will be despised and rejected. The religious and the political rulers turned against him, crucify him, they cried. But look at the reversal in the second part of verse 7. God says, kings will see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. What a reversal. To some, his true dignity will be revealed. They'll worship him. They'll see in his person the work of God. They'll see the mark, uh, the trademark, if you like, of God's faithfulness to all his promises. But there's much more than that. Not only will God vindicate what seemed to be such a disappointing work, by making it a day of grace and salvation. But turn the page with me to verse 8, and you'll see an amazing promise in the second half of the verse. He says to the servant, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. The servant's going to become a covenant. 
Now, a covenant is the place at which an agreement is made between two parties where reconciliation is procured. And the covenant that God makes with Israel is not just to the physical Israel that they will return from Babylon, though that's the first limited framework of reference in verse 8, to establish the land and to apportion the desolate heritages. But he's going to reestablish the Davidic kingdom under this eternal king, where all the offspring of Abraham, who are not just the physical descendants, but the men and women of faith who put their trust in this king, will receive the promised inheritance of peace and enter into everlasting life. That will mean liberation from captivity, being brought from the outside right within God's family, being emerging from the darkness into the light of Christ. That's why it says in verse 9 to the prisoners, come out and to those who are in the darkness, appear. The return from Babylon was only a pale foreshadowing of the true end of the spiritual exile when a voice was heard crying in the desert, the voice of John the Baptist, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley will be exalted, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked places will be made straight and the rough places plain and all flesh will see the salvation of God. That's what the servant has come to do for all the world. And then God confirms this to his people, verse 9b through to 12. Uh, you see, the people here are those who put their faith in the servant. Again, not just the physical sons of Abraham, the Jewish nation, but the believers who respond to the call to leave their Babylon and put their faith in God's promises. And that extends to all of us as New Testament believers through the coming of Jesus, whose comfort and compassion are so great. Remember how he saw the multitudes harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And that means that those who follow him become his flock under his pastoral care. And that is what it is like to be liberated from the darkness. Look at verse 9. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They will not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water he will guide them. See, that's what it means to be one of his people. To receive the light of Christ. To become walking in the light of life. It means pasture in the place of barrenness obviously a sheep, a shepherd, flock image. It means provision, food and drink. It means protection from the elements. All these are uh, images from the shepherd and the flock. It means guidance to springs of water, a continual source of refreshment, not just to a, a stream that might flow for a little while, but to perpetual springs, which are always welling up to everlasting life. These are the blessings of being people of the Messiah, people of the Savior. And then in verse 11, the flock becomes, as Isaiah changes his imagery, a, a mighty marching army. And nothing is going to stop its progress. All the mountains will become a road. The highways will be raised up. And what is going to happen? Well, from all over the world, verse 12 says, people are going to come to join this community. Uh, verse 12 is a very vivid verse. It's got look, look in it. Behold is a little formal in our translation. But what he's really saying is, 
this mighty group of people whom I will raise up and bring to myself to my holy city. Look, they'll come from afar and look, those from the north and look from the west and even those from the land of Syene, which many commentators think is an ancient Hebrew word for a very distant place, which is often acquainted, uh, 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 which is often related to China. Syene, Sinim, China. Well, it may or may not be that that's what's in view. Certainly, China would be a very distant place to the Israelites of uh, Isaiah's day. But what he's saying is, right across the world, from all four points of the compass, God is going to bring his people back together. And we're here this morning, one flock under one shepherd, on our way home to the heavenly Jerusalem, and he's committed to providing all the resources that are needed on the way to ensure our safe arrival in his kingdom at the end of the road. What marvelous promises. What comfort and compassion. What light in the darkness. Trust him. Believe him. Pray to him. Ask for his strength. Because the whole creation is rejoicing in it. Our last verse. Sing for joy, O heaven, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. Why? Why is the whole creation in celebration mode, glorifying God with great shouts of joy and songs of praise? Because the Lord has comforted his people. That's a once-for-all action in the coming of Jesus in his death and resurrection. He has comforted us. He has strengthened us. He's come to us to give us new life. And then the next tense is a continuing tense. And he will go on having compassion on his afflicted. There's a great work of Christ done in history. And on the basis of that, there's a great work of Christ being done in your life if you trust him today and tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and through this week. Because he performs what he promises. And he combines power and the deepest sensitivity and love to work things out for his people. The Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. So he is the shepherd king. And that great strong arm that rules the world is also the gracious and tender arm that gathers the lambs to him. This is our God. And if we're rightly related to him, then we'll want to be part of the chorus of praise throughout the whole world that shouts his glory and praises his name and sings our hallelujahs day by day. Sing for joy, for he's done it. He sent his son. The servant has completed his work. He's comforted his people. And there will never be a day when he will not have compassion on us in whatever afflictions we may find ourselves. Let's pray together. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Those who follow me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We praise you, our gracious God, that these things you prophesied 700 years before they happened were so wonderfully fulfilled in your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We thank you that you did prophesy them so far ahead that we might know that you are the God who controls history and who works out everything according to your sovereign will. And that encourages us to know that we're not living in a random world. We're not living in a world that's going out of control or falling apart. But that you are governing everything now at this moment in time towards the completion of your, com of your purposes in the second coming of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So we thank you for your comfort and for your compassion. And we pray that you will help us not to harden our hearts, not to shrug off the things that you say to us, but to respond in love and in obedience because we respond in faith, trusting you to be our God and rejoicing that we can be your people through Jesus, the light shining in our darkness. Help us to that end, we pray, Lord, for your name's sake. Amen. There's uh, still some questions coming in, and Jamie's going to keep sorting them down at the front so we can try and group them together and take those that um, most reflect what the, the things that people are asking. Um, I've lost the one I was going to start with. David, from a, a couple of weeks ago, we, um, we've been thinking about um, idolatry a fair bit over the last few weeks, things that uh, people, things, beliefs that, that people put above God in the world. Um, this question is written, I think my idol is probably myself. What do I do? Thank you very much. Well, I think, um, I think that is true for all of us, that the basic idolatry is that we live for ourselves rather than for God, that we would like to be our own God and revolve our w world around ourselves. Um, what do I do? Um, of course, it doesn't mean that we uh, try to um, expunge ourselves, to get rid of ourselves, because God created us and he has redeemed what he created. So we've got to always hold in mind the idea that uh, what God redeems is what he has first created. And he created ourselves. We have marred that image of God in ourselves by our own choices and by our own ref refusal to let God be God. What we need to do then is to repent, and that needs to be done on a daily basis. And then we need to daily renew our faith in the Lord Jesus and trust in him and to ask his Holy Spirit who lives within us as we trust Christ, to transform us on a daily basis, on an increasing, um, in, in an increasing measure, so that I become less important and Christ becomes more important in my life day by day. That's what I think Paul meant in the New Testament when he talked about being crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. So Christ living in me uh, enables me to deal with my sinful self-centered uh, way of living by the Holy Spirit's power changing me gradually and sometimes it seems it's very gradual and sometimes we may feel we're going backwards rather than forwards but God is at work doing it so we trust in him to work that out in us can you say a, a bit more about that that gradual thing so there, there'll be many who've been trying that for a long time and maybe feel as though they're not making much progress and we know in theory that Jesus in us ought to be powerful enough to change us but it just it does seem so slow. Yes, and that's because sin is so deep. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you find this, but whenever we make some uh, new commitment to Christ, or whenever we pray about some issue in our lives that we 
think needs to be changed, maybe, you know, our sinfulness in some way, um, everything may go well for a day or two, and then the same issue arises again. And, but this is a mark of going on with Christ. You see, he doesn't, it's like, as, as, as it were, the cottage of our lives has a cellar in which there are all sorts of dreadful things hidden. Much, we would rather not admit that they're there. But within every human being, there is. And God doesn't go down into the cellar right at the beginning and say, now I'm going to show you all these dreadful things, because we probably would never recover from it. He does it gradually. He brings things up one by one by one. And the whole Christian life is an experience of that. But knowing God's love and grace and mercy more and more and experiencing his love more and more. So if you're worried about it's taking an awfully long time, it always does. But the thing is, is there progress? Are you seeing some progress? And you're not necessarily the best judge of it. Um, Other people will see the progress more than you do. Um, And so... I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be too worried about that. I would say, so long as each day uh, we're living our life with Christ, he will deal with things gradually, step by step, and he won't deal with everything at once. And sometimes he keeps us on a short lead because that makes us really dependent on him. Uh, and if it all happened overnight and we went off and said, oh, I've solved all that problem, we'd soon, go, we'd soon become conceited again. So uh, we do need um, just to keep trusting. Thank you. And the, the importance of being in... Uh, fellowship with others oh, and yes. hearing God's word together, our small groups. Yeah, and that's right. Yes, yes. In all sorts of ways, um, God gives us means of grace through fellowship, through Bible study, through prayer fellowship, and through serving God together. They're all means of his grace. And other people will see it more in your life than you will. Thank you, David. One more from um, previous weeks before we get on to, um, to today's passage. It may help to have the Bible open on uh, chapter 48, actually just in front of you, if you would. That's page 737. And that reference, David, to your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Um, Can you expand on how we as Christians may be missing out on God's peace and blessing in the way that the Israelites were? Is there any analogy there? Uh, I think there's an analogy in the sense that the verse begins, Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. (laughs) Now, the commandments that we're given are the commandments of the Lord Jesus. And you know how in the New Testament, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And the commandments that he gives us are in his own teaching and in the inspired teaching of the apostles. So it's not that we've got a a rule book and we've got to tick all the rules and keep all the rules um, in order to experience God's presence in our lives. But it is that... uh, obedience to Jesus is a mark of our love and faith in him and as we trust him put our faith in him and grow in our love for him then our peace does keep flowing the river image is not just a stream that dries up in the summer but a river like the Thames which is always flowing and the waves of the sea image is the constant coming of the waves one after the other you can't stop either of them peace and righteousness that are unstoppable in your life. That comes by deliberately seeking in the strength of the Spirit again, asking God to give us his strength, to obey his commands, to keep his precepts. So I do think there is, uh, and we may be missing out on it, because there's areas of our lives in which we're not obedient to God, in which we, you know, we all get crises like this, where God says something, so I'm not going to do it. Uh, And that will destroy our peace and it will give us a sense of being disjointed from God 
But the more we trust and obey, the more we will experience peace and righteousness. Thank you, David. On, on to um, the seventh song from today's passage. Why were the Jewish people expecting a powerful king when Isaiah says they were to expect a suffering servant? Uh, good question. Uh, the answer is because they'd read to the end of the book. Because the last part of Isaiah is all about the conquering king. Uh, so we've got three portraits of the Messiah. We've got the Emmanuel God with us. We've got the suffering servant. And from 56 to 66, we've got the anointed conqueror with the sword drawn in his hand who will overcome all the forces of evil and bring about the kingdom of righteousness. Now, if you were a Jew in Jesus' day, suffering under the heel of the Roman Empire, the last portrait would be particularly attractive to you. Somebody who's going to come and kick the Romans out and give us the land back. The suffering servant, how do you reconcile that with the anointed conqueror? That was the big dilemma. So it mustn't be too hard on them that they found it hard to reconcile. We wouldn't be able to reconcile it until we've seen the whole story. We've seen the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. And we see the expansion of the gospel around all the world. So um, they are all the same figure, but it's easy to see why the Jews of the first century thought in terms of the conquering hero. Selective listening. Yes. I do that with Emily sometimes. Um, I probably shouldn't go into that. Uh, why does God reveal his answer or Jesus slowly such that people are confused? For example, John the Baptist asking about Jesus from prison. Why didn't he just give us a photo or something so that we could have seen it really easily? Well, I think because it's always a matter of faith and God gives faith and God grows faith. So it's not just intellectual credence, is it? It's not just saying, I believe that Jesus of Nazareth is God because I can't think of a good uh, argument as to why he isn't. That's not necessarily faith at all. That may be intellectual conviction, or at least temporary intellectual conviction, but faith is saying, I'm uh, committing myself to this person. I'm going to give myself to them. Sometimes people are very convinced about the arguments, but they say, I still don't want to become a Christian. Faith is the personal commitment of life to Christ. Uh, and so that, I think, is, what some, uh, is, is what lies behind this. Thank you. Uh, only time for a couple more, I'm afraid, David. We'll have to keep chatting about this over the coffee afterwards. Um, a couple of questions. What does it mean for us to be the light of the world? How we like Jesus and unlike Jesus, and then related... In the New Testament, Jesus says, we're the light of the world. Does that mean we should just focus on evangelism, Bible study, and going to church? Or is it wider than this in application? Yes. Uh, yes, we, <laughs> we should focus on those things, but it is wider in application. It's the whole of our lives. I mean, why do we do the, the Bible reading, praying, going to church? In order that we might um, encourage one another to grow into the likeness of Christ, so that wherever you are tomorrow at this time, on Monday... You're shining the light of Jesus. Now, that is, it's, it's the lives that we live, and that opens up all sorts of opportunities for us to talk about him. doesn't mean that we're silent about it, but we look and pray for opportunities to speak of him, and we realize that that will only have credibility if our life is actually a reflection of the light of Christ. So when he says, you're the light of the world, he's not saying you've got to have within you some quality of light that you can give to the world. He's saying, as I shine into you, then you will shine with my light. As you love and trust and obey me, then my light will shine out from you. And Matthew 5.16 says, let your good works 
be the means by which that light shines. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who's in heaven. So it's by the whole of life, lived for God, day by day, that the light shines out into the world. And the church then is called in the Bible, is symbolized by the moon, because it is the reflected light of God the Son that shines out into the darkness of the world. We're a very limited little light compared to his glorious light. But if we're really letting Jesus, the light of the world, illuminate us, we'll be shiners too. Thank you. Um, we haven't got time for all of them, I'm afraid. Let's just close with, with this one. David, this is a question for your quiet times, really. How can we New Testament believers apply the great truths about the servant in Isaiah to our Christian life day by day? How are you going to do that this week? Well, I'm going to thank him uh, a, a great deal. Um, I think thankfulness is one of the ways we do it. Uh, it. I've been struck in the New Testament how often the epistles say, and be thankful, and be thankful. And sometimes in my life I think I've not been very thankful. And my whole spiritual health is greatly increased when I become thankful for who Jesus is, for what he's done for me, when I start to express my love and gratitude to him in words, in my prayers, and in the sort of life I'm seeking to live day by day for him. So I do think that um, this picture of the servant, and it's even more clearly in, in the next few chapters, it's so overwhelming what God has done for us in Christ. I mean, we were Gentiles out there, the coastlands, the far islands, not a hope sunk in darkness and wickedness. And if day by day there is some little glimmer of what an incredible thing God has done for me, how he's transformed my life, that he should care for me, that he give me pasture and protection and provision, those things that we looked at in the chapter this morning, you know. Uh, that, that makes you really thankful and joyful. And you go into the day praising God for who you are in Christ and for what he's done for you. Uh, and that, for me, changes the whole perspective. Thank you, David. Would you lead us in a um, prayer of praise? Yes, yes. Father, we do want to thank you again for all your wonderful grace to us. We think of that verse that we ended with, the whole creation shouting out its songs of praise because of your comfort and your compassion. And we pray that you'll forgive us when we get um, overwhelmed by all the pressures of the physical world around us and the business pressures and the work pressures and the family pressures. We pray that you'll help us every day to have that little moment of calm in which we remind ourselves of who we are as we read your word and pray in our own lives and families. And we pray that you'll send us out into this week rejoicing in the greatness of what the servant has done. Thank you that uh, you've reconciled us to yourself. Thank you that you've made us members of your eternal kingdom. So please set our hearts on fire with love for you as we seek to trust and obey you. And please use us wherever we will be at this time tomorrow to be shining lights for you just by the quality of the life we live and then by the words we speak. Help us to that end, Lord. Send us out as your church to make you known in your world. For Jesus' sake. Amen.